the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself. Without the lies and the false beliefs, where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. I'm an Indian. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. So today we are looking at ourselves, really. We are looking at representations of academics in popular public discourse. Yes. Um, so we are trying to figure out what the world thinks of us. While being us. While being us. It's all very meta. So a couple of weeks ago... There were a spate of articles in various blogs and online journals from the conversation through to the LSE blog about academics and the impact that academic publishing has, or rather the lack of impact that academic publishing has. So the the idea is that because... Um, with REF being a particular issue in Britain, REF is the system where all academics in all universities in Britain are judged based on their publication. Uh, academics are buying into some of the more pernicious methods of policing their career and their lives uh, by choosing to publish in apparently reputed high-ranking journals even though no one will read them rather than publishing them in a more non-academic format where they might actually have an impact. Um, so this bothered us for a variety of reasons that we'll go on to discuss and it also got us thinking about what academics think of the popular representation of academia and we crowdsourced this, we wrote to all of our academic friends uh, and ask them to suggest their favourite movie or TV academic. And we've got a wide range of responses, haven't we? Yes, and not everyone gave us their favourite. Yeah. Some people just gave us representations of academics that are interesting or um, fascinating or frustrating. Yes. Um, and we got, we got a ton of responses, actually. Yes. Do, you, do you want to talk about the kinds we had yeah well i think everyone everyone really likes indiana jones mm. we got a lot of indiana jones um you yourself when you did bright club speaking of academic public engagement mm. when you did bright club you you made a joke about being indiana jones when on field work um but also um scientists in movies like jurassic park independence day Dr. Ellie Sattler in mm. Jurassic Park, Park. Um, um, Levinson in Independence, in Independence Day. Day, Ghostbusters, famously. Yes, Ghostbusters, um, Dan Brown. And Robert Langdon as a professor of symbology and uh, what that kind of academic erudition and expertise does to to the character of Robert Langdon and what that means in, in those novels and films. Um, Hannibal Lecter, which was which surprised me because I hadn't expected, I hadn't really thought of Hannibal Lecter as an academic. Yeah, we uh, think of him as a... We think of him as a... Cannibal. cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if those are the same thing. 
Um, but all, I mean, so far, almost all of the ones we've talked about have been have been male. But they were, you know, you mentioned Ellie Sattler in Jurassic Park. Um, a friend of ours mentioned the Emma Thompson character in Wit. Yes, Dr. Uh, Vivian Baring, I think is her name. There was a, another friend of ours who recommended Alice Holland in Still Alice. Yes, a and, fairly recent movie. Yeah, and one of the things that this friend spelt out as, as being important is the fact that we see her give a lecture. And I think this that adds another dimension to popular perceptions of what academics look like and what they do with their time. Yes. Also, no one mentioned the Big Bang Theory, mm. but the Big Bang Theory is a big one. Um, it's a group of physicists and engineers, and I think one of the one of the women characters is a neuroscientist. Mm. Um, so it's a bunch of scientists on the Big Bang Theory. There's, I think, the the original sitcom mm. nerd was Ross on Friends, mm. the paleontologist. Um, who has his book in a library and <laughs> he has one of his rivals in a, in a particular love triangle is someone who has not won one but two Nobel Prizes in paleontology. Um, yes. <laughs> An interesting view of what academic research looks like and the prizes on offer. Yeah, I don't think I've met a Nobel Prize winner. No. <laughs> Certainly not one in paleontology. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can we? I mean, these characters are very, very distinct, uh, and we can go on to talk a little bit about how there are some of the trends in in the way newer programs are, are changing the academic trope in different ways. Um, an obvious case is Annalise Keating in How to Get Away with Murder. Yes. Which is a very different, you know. She's a woman of colour, she's a, a professor who's actually teaching. So that there, there are ways in which um, the professor on screen is not one thing. But can we identify particular trends from these, these examples of fictional academics? Yes, there's, um, in a lot of cases, there's um, either... Um, and sometimes and, a privileged perspective, an elite perspective. Um, certainly there's either a wealth element or a um, above-it-all... They're almost all male. Most of them are male, yes. Um, there's a, a kind of social awkwardness. Certainly science academics over humanities academics are presented as often with mental health issues or on the autism yeah. spectrum somehow. So A Beautiful Mind is, yes. a, is a classic example, or Turing um, yeah. as, as another example. Mathematicians are, are rarely normal on screen. Yes, and there's something about eccentricity yeah. combined with abnormality hmm. um, to create a combination, a dangerous, often hmm. a dangerous combination hmm. of genius and... Um, mental illness that either forwards a plot, as someone said, or that causes causes drama yes. um, in some way. Yeah, the academic is detached from from the real world. Part of the social awkwardness is is a way of setting up expertise and erudition as as almost dehumanizing. So so. 
the academic who is an expert in usually his but or, or sometimes her field uh, has lost something of their humanity in the process because they can no longer relate to the everyday person on the street. Yes. You see that sometimes in um, superhero movies where mm. a scientific or, or a science expert is consulted um on some procedure or, mm. you know, it's always, it's always a scientist making a superhero or, mm. um, making a villain. Um, you know, no one, no one mentioned Iron Man. No. Well, it's Frankenstein, right? Yeah. Frankenstein is the, is the trope of the evil genius scientist who is meddling in things that they shouldn't meddle in and in the process creates something that they can no longer control. Yes. And I mean, it's a trope that goes be before Frankenstein, to be honest, but Frankenstein is perhaps the first most famous example of this this trope of the dangers of academic expertise. And the dangers of science. Yeah. Um, there's, there's often a hubris, mm. a scientific or academic hubris attached mm. to some of these people. I mean, the, the Sheldon character on Big Bang Theory, I think, takes this mm. um, to its comedic extreme. Yeah. Um, and it gets used in different ways. Sometimes it's used as the as the the solution to the problem. Sometimes mm. it's the cause of the problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's both. Right in Jurassic Jurassic Park, mm. scientists have created mm. dinosaurs, but yeah. then it ends up being scientific knowledge mm. that then goes back and controls it. Mm. And or it's it's funny. Ross is always the butt of jokes mm. on Friends. Ross is the academic who's completely mm. incapable mm. of managing his own life. Mm. And there's and the detached and not grounded, kind of up in the clouds, mm. um, just kind of off doing weird stuff. Mm. Um, Pacific Rim, I think no one mentioned this one, but mm. I find the scientists in Pacific Rim. Have you seen Pacific Rim? No. Oh, it's good. It's, mm. it's good. Um, there's two scientists mm. who are brought on board um, to help in the study of the phenomenon mm. that all the main characters are fighting. And they experiment on themselves. Mm. just t completely like against the wishes of everyone mm. and they absolutely destroy themselves for the sake of their science mm. um and they're willing to sacrifice themselves and everyone else for the sake of gathering gathering scientific knowledge well it's it's dr jekyll isn't it yeah it's dr jekyll or uh in a slightly different format sherlock holmes or house yeah you know which is the I mean, Sherlock Holmes is less of an academic than House is, or, or Dr. Jekyll is. But certainly the the idea that someone's expertise is puts them on a heroic scale, which justifies all sorts of antisocial behavior. Yeah. Because they need to have that genius stroke, insanity stroke, superhuman inhuman trope in order to be the solution of the problem. Yeah. So academics tend to get dehumanized a little mm. bit um, in a lot of cultural representations. So if the scientist is denied their humanity because of their expertise, I think something slightly different happens with social scientists or humanities academics. Uh, an example we could think of is David Parenti from season four of The Wire, who is the sociologist academic 
who goes into the school in Baltimore to try to come up with a program to help kids who are, are not benefiting from the school system. And he is presented as someone who is detached because their academic knowledge doesn't allow them to see the reality of the world of inner city Baltimore. In other words, the, if what matters, what is distinctive there is, is class. And there is, there is a particular politics at work there in presenting the academic sociologist or the academic humanities, in broadly speaking, as elite. Because, of course, any political impact that their work might have is immediately undercut by presenting them as elite. Uh, we've we talked about this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about the attack on universities as an attack on thought and an, at an attack on on dangerous political analysis. Dangerous in the sense that it challenges hegemony or challenges the nation state. And one way of immediately undermining any critique that academics might come up with is to reinforce this notion of the uh, ivory tower elite divorced from reality expert yes and that's something when i when we see it in something like season four of the wire um definitely connects i think mm. with some of the work that that we do mm. and what it what it means to be an academic um and we get told mm. often that what we do isn't isn't in the real world we don't we don't know anything about the real world we we've again we've spoken about this before about uh, a binary that is made between either the academic world and the real world or even more specifically between academics and taxpayers because um academics are clearly not living in the real world we don't have to you know buy groceries or pay taxes or sit whatever. in traffic yeah and what is interesting is how I think, as we'll go on to unpack, the if one of the effects of this discourse of portraying academics as out of touch elites, and the the kind of attacks that we we described at the start, where the article in the conversation or the or the LSE blog, which talks about academics losing the opportunity to to be impactful by publishing in academic journals, how do these two discourses are actually doing? something very similar. In other words, they are silencing particular types of work that is being done by academics. And the kind of mundane, basic day-to-day -day lives of academics, because they are, we are just people, mm -hmm. um, and often quite boring mm -hmm. people. Should we talk a bit more about some of the discourse that's happening in the mainstream media? Yeah. Um, this comes up every few months I feel yeah. like we rehash some yeah. of these ideas and um, academics are often finding themselves either speaking to other mm. academics saying guys we need to we need to engage more with the public mm. we need to make our work accessible we need to we need to try and promote um, some sort of mm. agenda that's outside of the academy mm. and then other academics coming back and saying actually you know we we do do that already. We are subject to all kinds of um, 
forms of moderation and mm. policing and auditing mm. and our our work is filtered through institutional structures that force us to mm. move and work in certain ways mm. that constrain our activities and that's you know quite institutional but there's also philosophical questions about mm. this about what what happens when we translate academic research into the language and discourse of the mainstream media or mm. pop culture um, in terms of fiction mm. or, mm. you know, film or, or TV. Mm. And the, the process by which knowledge gets mm. translated and therefore mm. altered. Um, and we can talk about it, you know, on all of these levels. Mm. But I think for us, one of the most frustrating things about seeing articles mm. like these, because they're quite popular, the mm. people who share these articles mm. seem to really say, you know, why aren't there more academics mm. in the conversation? Why aren't we listening to academic expertise? Why aren't experts mm. saying this and saying that and getting involved and, and providing the knowledge that we as taxpayers have funded for mm. them Mm. to have. And I think we wanted to, to do an episode on this for our podcast because we wanted to talk a little bit about what it is that we do mm. and what it is that our friends do and mm. our colleagues mm. do because it's far more than publishing mm. in academic journals mm. or making media appearances mm. on BBC4 or mm. on the news mm. or mm. contributing to news articles yeah. or having a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk more about the day-to-day? -day? Yeah, I mean, I guess in trying to make make it clear what exactly we are challenging or what we find find problematic about the, the uh, discourse as it stands. So I'll just quote from this article on the conversation. Um, the article is called Academics Can Change the World if they stop talking only to their peers, uh, by Savo Heleta. And um, the article makes the point that an average journal article is read completely by no more than 10 people. And as a result, the overwhelming majority of academics are not shaping today's public debates because their work is largely sitting in academic journals that are read almost exclusively by their peers. There are many, many things that, that are problematic with this, with this line of thinking. Um, the the LSE blog uh, is is doing a similar thing. The, the the blog post is called "Addicted to the Brand: The Hypocrisy of a Publishing Academic," and this one is written by Philip Moriarty. And I think one of the problems that both of these approaches have is that they are conceptualizing academic work very specifically as publishing. So the the outer face of academia, as it were, is journal articles, monographs, uh, academic work published in peer-reviewed academic se settings, which is largely read by academics. Is that one of the things we do? Yes, absolutely. But it is by no means the only thing we do. There is no room in any of this for teaching, for example. We are teaching largely people who are not going to go on to be academics. Most of the people we teach are going to go out into the, quote, real world. And... Certainly for both of us and for most of our friends and colleagues, we don't see teaching as imparting knowledge or not just as imparting knowledge. We are, we are teaching 
in order to challenge the way people think. And and I would like to think that that is quite often successful. In other words, students coming through our classes are thinking differently about issues. And that is a, just one way in which the borders between academia and the real world are blurred because these students are going to go out into the real world and they're, they're going to take their changed thinking along with them. This this mode of thinking doesn't doesn't seem to have much space for academics who are active on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on blogs. Uh, this This way of thinking doesn't seem to have much space for activist academia. In fact, the the research which I think stimulated this group of articles, uh, it's by two academics, uh, Oshit K. Bishash and Julianne Kircher, and they wrote, they were quoted in a newspaper called The Straits Times, where they describe the antipathy that some scholars have for publishing in the popular media, and they quote an anonymous professor at a conference uh, at the University of Oxford, quote, Running an opinion editorial to share my views with the public sounds like activism to me. And that particular academic clearly does not believe in the the role of the activist academic. But there are lots and lots of academics who are happy and proud to be described as activist academics. And they do not think of the net effect of their research and writing and thinking and teaching to be simply how many publications they have. No, I don't. I know very few, in fact. Yes. But I'm, you know, you you mentioned this this particular um, quote mm. here from a an anonymous professor mm. at a conference. There, there are tons of examples of professors in the UK who write regularly for columns. Yes. Sometimes for columns that I fundamentally disagree with. I'm thinking of the historian Tim Stanley mm. at Oxford. Mm. Um, who has a very conservative mm. position, but he he writes um, piece conservative pieces for the Daily Telegraph regularly um, and does media appearances regularly. Danny Dorling, on the other side, a, a very famous mm. professor of geography at, at the University of Oxford, regularly contributes to The Guardian. Mm. And his books um, very much straddle the line between... Mm. Um, more mainstream nonfiction and academic work. He mm. has developed a style of writing and dissemination of knowledge which combines some some quite complex and rigorous mm. academic work with popular language and, and mm. um, a writing style mm. that allows him to share his work with the public. Mm. His work is is radical. It's about it's about inequalities. It's mm. about social inequalities and austerity. And he's mm. a very anti-austerity academic. And he mm. has produced a ton of analysis and a ton of interpretations to challenge the government's mm. austerity position, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago with the budget. Mm. There are academics, you know, at, at work in all of these realms. Yeah. Um and they do it in in very different ways. And there's a sense in which I think both of these these worlds of discourse, if you like, the 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 blog articles about lamenting academics' reluctance to 
to engage more publicly and the the various examples of academics in popular culture where academic expertise is presented as something dangerous, you know, the Frankenstein, the Dr. Jekyll, the Jurassic Park, and so on. Um, dangerous or inaccessible. Yes. Like Sheldon in yes. The Big Bang Theory yes. is funny yes. because he believes that the inferior intellect yes. of everyone around him yes. is offensive. Yes. And the joke is on him yes. because he's the one who isn't normal. Yes. Yes. Um, and so it's it's inaccessible the knowledge that Sheldon has. Yeah. And both of those both of these tropes are serving to undermine the validity of academic expertise in a public realm. And it is not unconnected, I don't think, from something else we mentioned a few weeks ago, which is the British government's attempts to make it illegal for publicly funded academics to lobby for policy change. Because you are doing this, they're, they're doing the same thing, which is either discursively or actually through policy, creating barriers from which would which would allow academics to to try to make their voices heard and specifically there is a political dynamic to what voices can be heard and what voices can't be heard because there there is a sense in which the academic expertise that is being allowed out so the, the academic expertise that these blogs are encouraging is certainly presented, whether intentionally or not, as a political expertise, uh, as opposed to politicised perspective that academics who are experts in their field might be able to provide. It's interesting. It's as if, I mean, there's a there's a huge paradox here, um, where there's a call for academics to allow their findings, their research, their knowledge, their expertise out into the world without any political framing. Yes. And once you do that, the knowledge itself becomes available to interest groups and politicians and activists and actors who will who will politicize it. Yes. Um, you know, science is never done in a vacuum and yes. none of the research that we do is ever done in a vacuum. And so there's a call for academics to release their work without politics yes. and let the work stand on its own to be taken forward and used as it will. Yes. Um, but then at the same time, there is a call for academics to change the world. Yes. You know, this, this this headline in the conversation. It's about academics being able to change the world. Yes. And you cannot change the world without a position. You have, If you're going to change the world, you have to imagine the change. Yes. You have to imagine a vision for the future of the world, and that is a fundamentally political act. And so there's a call for academics to come down out of their ivory towers and to... to throw off the shackles of of objectivity and detachment and yes. to become involved. Yeah. But then at the same time, when, when we do that, our work is, is therefore then no longer a model of expertise or it's no longer legitimate as an 
expert or an authority. Because it's no longer objective. Yeah. So we were speaking about this before before we started. If you go on a site like ratemyprofessor.com, um, where students get to review the the uh, teaching staff at at various universities, largely in America, but not not just so. And one of the commonest responses of criticism that you will see is that such and such professor is too opinionated because what is what we are being asked to get rid of then is what is what should be our biggest strength the fact that we have a particular political perspective based on our research and our knowledge acquired knowledge and thought and analysis and all of those things um instead our research output is very specifically commodified so that it 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 can be packaged and sold um rather than it actually challenging hegemony yes what i find really interesting is that this this applies to all research yes um whether or not the research itself is is part of a prescriptive agenda yeah um so in public health research, which is a yeah. huge industry, yeah. huge field, and hugely valuable, yeah. it's public health scholars and doctors who have, you know, allowed yeah. for a lot of policy that yeah. protects us. Yes. Um, many, many academics say, my job isn't, isn't political. It's yes. not my job to make policy recommendations. Yeah. It's, it's the politician's job to do that. Yes. Um, so then when you present them with evidence, with any sort of scientific evidence, yes. they can interpret it how they will. Yes. You know, whether or not they have the expertise. Yes. Or the integrity to, yes. to do so. Yes. Um, and then, but, but we, we don't have a responsibility. That's, yeah. their, that's on them. Yes. We don't have any responsibility for our work once it... Or even any control over it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I think is, is, in a lot of ways, absolutely true, that... Um, our, you know, our work often gets taken from us and put to work in various ways that we can't, yes. we can't necessarily control. Um, and that's, that's a feature of producing knowledge yes. generally, yes. um, not just by academics. What's interesting about this, this particular trend is none of these, some of these people are academics in the UK, which yes. is fascinating because they are subject to the REF, which is the Research Excellence Framework, and they will be subject to the TEF, the Teaching Excellence Framework, when that comes into play. Um, and they're subject to the standard institutional norms that are required of academics. So in order to get a job in academia, you have to demonstrate a publication history. And that publication history has to be in reputable, internationally renowned publications. You can't just become an academic and and have fun on your personal blog and say, I'm not going to publish, I'm not going to publish. You have to play the game yeah. because you are constrained by the requirements. Yeah. Um, certainly until, until later on in your career. Yes. And even then, you know, you are constantly audited and examined. And in some cases, that's good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we shouldn't be left unchecked. Mm. Yeah. But there's... There are 
entire institutions at work, forcing academics down certain paths and through certain channels that they, that they acquiesce to, that they challenge, that they do both of. Um, And the discourse here basically allows the public to imagine academics as being the reason for their insistence on publishing in journals. And, and it, I mean, you're completely right. Academics at various points, academics of different kinds, and even the same individual academic will at, at different moments acquiesce to and challenge this neoliberal institutionalization of, of the kind of research we, they do. But again, if, if the focus is entirely on academic publications as the one measure of judging your productivity as an academic, then that immediately silences all the various other things things academics do. If you think, you know, we've we've spoke already t- today about um, the tax on universities in India. One of the the sharpest, most coherent, cogent critiques of those attacks have come from academics in India and outside India. Uh, multiple universities, including JNU, have run Reclaim the Campus events where academics are giving alternative lectures to students about the political situation of the day. Uh, we might think of Wendy Doniger, who famously wrote uh, A Revisionist History of Hinduism, published it with a non-academic publisher, Penguin, uh, and Penguin was then asked to, and the publisher agreed to, withdraw the book from sale in India. Uh, bowing to pressures from the Hindu right in India. And that's just one very specific example. There are lots of examples of both contemporary and going back in history of academics being blacklisted and mm-hmm. and uh, victimised for holding specific political positions, which are sometimes presented within academic forms and sometimes not. We might think of the Stephen Salater case, who... Uh, the academic who was famously unhired from the Department of Native American Studies where he was appointed, supposedly appointed, in the University of Illinois in Urbana. And the reason that was one of the reasons that was given for his unhiring was that he allegedly wrote anti Semitic tweets on Twitter. You know, clearly a non academic form of expression and certain academics in America who were defending the decision to unhire him argued that Stephen Salater could not claim academic freedom of expression because the output was not peer-reviewed. So you have this odd setup where peer-reviewed journals and all that they involve in terms of lack of public access are being highlighted as both the only place where you are legitimately able to express your academic views on the one hand, but on the other, this elitist form of expression where if you do only limit yourself to that, then you are not taking the opportunity to change the world. And so it becomes this paradox where what you've published in a peer-reviewed journal is considered the highest authority. It's the only legitimate... Yes. Output for your research. But once it's there, it's yeah. useless. Yes. 
but it has to stay there in order for it to remain legitimate and authoritative. Yes. So once you take it out, it's no longer pure yes. golden scientific research. Yes. It's tainted. Yes. And therefore not legitimate anymore, so yes. we don't have to use it. Yes. So which is it? Well, it's <laughs> they, they would want it to have it both. And there's another aspect to this as well, which is the same nation state through its governmental and non-governmental institutions like the university like the publishing houses and so on are on the one hand demanding further and further public engagement often very narrowly defined but public engagement on behalf of academics or on the part of academics but on the other are closing all the public libraries one after another that would allow those academic monographs to have a public audience you know there's there is very little in in any of these these uh journal article uh, blog articles or academic research so far as that we've seen which talks about the cost price of an academic book yeah you know the kinds of books that we need to publish in order to get jobs will cost 85 90 100 pounds which means that no one can afford to buy it except university libraries and perhaps in some cases public libraries. But if you close down public libraries and if you close down and limit public access to university libraries, then even the the small scope that there might be for a general non-academic audience to access this publicly funded bits of knowledge doesn't exist anymore. It disappears. It disappears. It's all just a paradox. Really? It's a paradox. It is. And it's a paradox that allows for the continuity of the system in terms of its increased bureaucratization, increased neoliberalization, uh, where academics are caught in the middle. Where And students. And students. Students are absolutely caught in the middle. Yes. Um, it ends up being academics and students sit as sort of the limbs, the extra limbs on the bureaucratic administrative system that is mm. the academy. Yes. Um, and kind of not sure what to do, where to yes. go. Yes. Um, and when when they do make decisions to do things differently and challenge things, then... Often the same institutions police police you because you know you've brought the university into disrepute or whatever. Yeah, it's a cheery note to end on. I know it's not all doom and gloom though. No, I think we enjoy being academics. Uh, we absolutely enjoy being academics, and you know there is a huge amount of academic privilege that we have that we've already spoken about. You know, none yes. of this is is challenging that idea of academic privilege in any way, but. I guess one of the things that, that interested us and made us want to do this particular episode is the way in which a popular discourse in terms of cultural representation and in terms of the blogosphere of what academia looks like mm -hmm. serves to reinforce the things that they are trying to attack. Yeah. You know, so so the, the article in, in the conversation is apparently trying to attack an ivory tower ghettoized academia. But what it is doing is reinforcing that. It is reinforcing that notion of a detached objective expertise, uh, which is completely apolitical. 
because the, what is being elided is the is the organic intellectual to use Gramsci's phrase. You know, we've spoken about the organic intellectual before the the deeply rooted, grounded, politicized, contextualized academic expert whose work is not detached from the the everyday realities of the world, but takes place in conversation in dialogue with that world. Yes, and that is able to articulate observations about the underlying hidden invisible processes and patterns of that world in order to display the workings of hegemony. Yes. In order to change the world. Yes. And these academics exist and they are they are working. They're they are working sometimes in the margins of academia, sometimes within academia and look outward looking. And sometimes um, in, in positions of power as well. Yes. We talk about I don't I think we make it sound like universities are these kind yeah. of um, monolithic yeah. arbiters of hegemony, but in fact, yes. like we talked about a few weeks ago with the the Boston Globe and yes. the Spotlight story, in fact, we are allowed to do the work that we do because there are people in in positions of power who yes. enable us to do it, who yes. support our work, and yes. who support the work of our wonderful friends and and colleagues and yes. and our students. Yes. Um, so it's. We talk about it in terms of this kind of big neoliberal process, but in mm. fact, there's always there's always the dialectic at work. Yeah, where there's power, there's resistance. It's our little our little form of resistance. <laughs> um, I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, as usual, tweet us, send us comments on Facebook and SoundCloud. Thank, thanks a lot for listening. Um, if you do get your podcast through iTunes, then rate us, review us. It helps other people find this particular podcast Um, we will be back next week and uh, we'll see you then bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hannah fitzpatrick and i have been anindya richardry you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at dr anindya r our music was provided by the agrarians and this has been the state of the theory thank you